and welcome to the podcast An Overview of English Literature, the perfect place for book lovers and enthusiasts of English literature. My name is Fernanda Moura. I am a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 31 of the podcast, which is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published book, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to share some exciting news for Jane Austen lovers. On Friday, May 26, at 12 p.m. Central European Summer Time, I will host a free online masterclass called Pastimes in Jane Austen's Era. Do you want to know what people did for fun in Regency England? What activities did Jane Austen and her characters do to pass the time? You can find the link to sign up for free on my Instagram account at books.end.culture. Or you can send me a message via email at hello at booksandculture.club and I'll send you the link. If you cannot join the masterclass live, you can watch the recording, which will be available for two weeks after the masterclass date. And if you'd like to further explore and study the life and works of Jane Austen, you should definitely check out the online course, The Jane Austen Club. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you have instant access to all classes, which you can follow at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the critical reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. You can register for the course via the website booksandculture.club and start your Austenian journey right away. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the 12th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 o'clock p.m. Central European Time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast, An Overview of English Literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time. And if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents. So I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoyed this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the 12th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Hello, book lovers. Hello, Jane Austen lovers. It is Jane Austen o'clock at Books and Culture. Grab your cup of coffee or your cup of tea. I already have mine right here. And we're going to have fun talking about Jane Austen's sense and sensibility today. Today, day 12. Um, so it's our 12th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's sense and sensibility. And... <clears throat> Excuse me, and the one before the last. So next week, um, we're going to finish reading 
the novel Sense and Sensibility. How exciting is that? We have a lot to talk about today. But your journey does not, your Austin, Jane Austen journey does not have to end next week with our last session of this guided reading. Not at all. You can continue your Jane Austen journey with the online course, the Jane Austen Club. It is an asynchronous course, online course. So as, as soon as you register, you have access to the material right away and you can dig deeper into the world of Jane Austen, her writing career, her relationship with her family, um, her early works, her published novels that you are mostly uh, familiar with, her unfinished works, which are quite interesting, the critical reception of her work, the cult of Jane Austen, uh, her letters, and a lot more. So if you're interested in continuing your studying of Jane Austen, I would recommend that you take this online course created by me with a lot of love and dedication. There is so much to read, to study, to learn about Jane Austen and the world she lived in. So I'm sure you will have a great time taking this course. I know that the students that have taken the course already have loved it. So that's a very good sign. And if you do take the course, um, send me an email at hello at booksandculture.club. I would love to receive your feedback. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about chapters 42 to 45. And I'm afraid this is going to be a long session. <laughs> uh, the chapters are a bit longer now. <clears throat> But a lot of interesting things happen during this session, so bear with me. And remember, if you do not have the time right now, you can always watch the recording here on YouTube later. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel so you help Books and Culture to grow. Or you can also listen to the audio-only um, sessions in the podcast and overview of English literature. In the podcast, we're a few weeks behind, so now... Here at, on YouTube, we're already in session 12 in the podcast. I have, um, well, I, um, yesterday I updated, uploaded session 7. <clears throat> but before we move on, oh, one more thing. Next week is our last session. We're going to finish reading in Austin Sense and Sensibility. So we're going to read five chapters next week. We're going to read chapters 46 to 50 and we'll wrap up our discussion. So those were the announcements. And before we move on to chapter 42, let's take a step back and remember, revise what we discussed last week in session 11. So, <clears throat> so the girls are still in London at the time. And Eleanor runs into Miss Steele at Kensington Gardens. Um, Miss Steele meaning the oldest, so Nancy. And Nancy tells her of a private conversation between Edward and Lucy. He wanted to break off the engagement because he has no longer anything to offer her. He has no money. He has no home. Um, and when she consented to marrying him, Lucy... Um, the prospects were very different, so 
uh, Edward Ferris gives Lucy the opportunity to back off, but she doesn't. She doesn't want to break the engagement off, but they are to wait until Edward takes orders to be married. So Edward will work in the Church of England with a very um, low income in comparison with what he would have um, with what he would have inherited if he had not broken with his family. So first he has to take orders and find a suitable place to work so that they can marry. And Lucy, of course, sends Eleanor a letter to tell her of her and Edward, Edward's plans. So Lucy cannot wait to boast to Eleanor that she has got almost got the man um, that Eleanor can lose all her hopes. Not that Eleanor has any at this point, but Lucy maybe thinks that Eleanor does. <clears throat> and um, and now the Dashwood sisters are to go with Mrs. Jennings to Cleveland to stay at the Palmers, and from there they would go home. So they really want to go home, but remember that women at the time were not allowed to, to travel on their own, especially single women, young women. So they would need to be escorted home. And of course, no one would get out of their ways to send these two, to escort these two girls back home. So they were like pawns in family and social activities. The same happened with Jane Austen and her sister Cassandra Austen. They were both unmarried and they had a lot of brothers who got married and got so then got wives and children married more than once so every now and then one of the brothers needed help with the birth of a child or with managing the home or with a sick wife etc and then Cassandra and Jane would be sent here and there to help the family um, and then if they really wanted to come back home they would have to wait until someone would take them back or pay for someone to escort them back. So they would spend months in another person's home. Like here, they've been in Mrs. Jennings' home in London for a couple of months now. And they just have to wait. But now there is the possibility of them moving closer to home, not home yet, but closer. And if they follow Mrs. Jennings and her sister, Charlotte Palmer, um, to the Palmer's residence in Cleveland. So that's what they are going to do. Although um, Marianne did not want to go at first because that's close to, relatively close to where uh, Willoughby's house is. And she has no inclination um, of meeting him or his, or Mrs. Willoughby, his wife, right? Um, and Colonel Brandon, gentlemen as always he talks to Eleanor in private and he wants to help Edward by offering him the living at Delaford that's his property however it's a small income so it will still not be enough to enable Edward to marry soon so look at that Edward Ferris is not a relation of Colonel Brandon and instead of selling the living to someone else or offering it to one of his uh, relatives or close friends, Colonel Brandon offers it to Edward Ferris. And why does he do that? Because he's a friend of the Dashwood sisters, of course. So he always takes pains in showing his um, affection 
to the girls, especially Marianne, through these indirect ways. And of course, this is a very funny part of the book. Mrs. Jennings overhears part of the conversation and she thinks completely different things. She thinks that the colonel has proposed to Eleanor. So in her mind, there is a different conversation going on there between Eleanor and the Colonel Brandon, and she's so happy. And then the two women go on talking after the Colonel leaves, but each one has their own version of the story in their minds. And at the end of the chapter, that's chapter 40, they realize the miscommunication and laugh about it. I think it's a very, um, it's a brilliant chapter and also a nice comic relief because things have been so dense with Marianne's suffering, with Eleanor's disappointment. So this um, chapter offers a comic relief. And Edward arrives in person to say goodbye. And then Eleanor tells him also in person of Colonel Brandon's offer. And he's very happy about it. Eleanor goes alone to pay a visit to Fanny Dashwood, her sister-in-law, um, and to say goodbye, right? And she runs into John Dashwood, her stepbrother, who tells her that Robert Ferris is now to marry Miss Norton, Morton. Um, and they have a great conversation. Eleanor is great. She's saying, oh, so is it just the same, I guess, for Miss Morton if she marries Edward or Robert Ferris? She has no choice, no opinion in the matter. And John Dashwood doesn't even think, she, he doesn't even seem to understand Eleanor's point. He says, no, I mean, there's no difference at all. Now they would inherit the same thing. So she's pretty much having the same by marrying Robert now than she would have by marrying a completely different person before. There you go, how marriage was um, perceived and women's role completely silent. Miss Morton has no agency over who she wishes to marry. She has no voice in the narrative at all, right? And that's on purpose. Of course, uh, Jane Austen is criticizing the, the institution of marriage for women at the time. And John leaves the room to call Fanny and Eleanor is left alone with Robert. And she gets a chance to know him better and she confirms her suspicions that he's a terrible person. He laughs at Edward's poor prospects and says Lucy is nothing but a simple country girl and Eleanor despises him. And that's where we left off last time. Um, and we'll continue today with chapter 42 or chapter 6 uh, in, um, in volume 3. So let's get started. On one other short call in Harley Street, in which Eleanor received her brother's congratulations on their traveling so far towards Barton without any expense, and on Colonel Brandon's being to follow them to Cleveland in a day or two, completed the intercourse of the brother and sisters in town. And a faint invitation from Fanny to come to Norland whenever it should happen to be in their way, which of all things was the most unlikely to occur, with a more warm, though less public, assurance from John to Eleanor of the promptitude with which he should come to see her at Delaford, was all that foretold any meeting in the country. So John Dashwood also thinks there's something going on between Eleanor 
and Colonel Brandon, and he's very happy with the prospects of his sister marrying Colonel Brandon. That would mean that she would be rich and she would not have to depend on him for anything, although he does nothing for them. Um, so this is a misunderstanding that many people, many characters in the novel are uh, share, that Eleanor and Colonel Brandon are to be married. And we're reading this through Eleanor's perspective. It amused her to observe that all her friends seemed determined to send her to Delaford, a place in which of all others she would now least choose to visit or wish to reside. For not only was it considered as her future home by her brother and Mrs. Jennings, but even Lucy, when they parted, gave her a pressing invitation to visit her there. Because um, uh, Lucy would be there with Edward, uh, because Edward would be uh, working... Um, in the living as the priest, reverend, the churchman. I'm, I'm not sure what the, the correct term is now. Um, there. So Eleanor would be seeing Edward all the time. And of course, she does not want that. Very early in April and tolerably early in the day, the two parties from Hanover Square and Berkeley Street set out from their respective homes to meet by appointment on the road. For the convenience of Charlotte and her child, they were to be more than two days on their journey, and Mr. Palmer, traveling more expeditiously with Colonel Brandon, was to join them at Cleveland soon after their arrival. Marianne, few as had been her hours of comfort in London, and eager as she had long been to quit it, could not, when he came to the point, bid adieu to the house in which she had for the last time enjoyed those hopes and that confidence in Willoughby, which were now extinguished forever without great pain. Nor could she leave the place in which Willoughby remained, busy in new engagements and new schemes in which she could have no share without shedding many tears. It's time to go. But now that it's time to go, although she really wanted to leave, Marianne feels that she's not only leaving London behind, but also leaving behind her herself, her own self, when she still believes, she still had hopes of being with Willoughby. She's leaving that hope behind as well. Once she uh, closes the door and leaves London, all that will have been in the past, and she cannot but suffer to say goodbye to this hope. Eleanor's satisfaction at the moment of removal was more positive. She had no such object for her lingering thoughts to fix on. She left no creature behind from whom it would give her moment's regret to be divided forever. She was pleased to be free herself from the persecution of Lucy's friendship. She was grateful for bringing her sister away unseen by Willoughby since his marriage and she looked forward with hope to what a few months of tranquility at Barton might do towards restoring Marianne's peace of mind and confirming her own. Their journey was safely performed. The second day brought them into the cherished or the prohibited county of Somerset, because that's where Willoughby resides. For as such was it dwelt on by turns in Marianne's imagination, and in the forenoon of the third they drove up to Cleveland. So instead of taking two days, they took three days to make this journey because Charlotte Palmer has an infant, has a baby. So um, it would it so it would already be hard to travel with the baby in a carriage. 
um, but it would take much more effort to do that two days straight. So they take it more easily and did it in three days. Now let's see what the Palmer's residence looks like. Cleveland was a spacious, modern-built house situated on a sloping lawn. It had no park, but the pleasure grounds were tolerably extensive. And like every other place of the same degree of importance, it had its open shrubbery and closer woodwalk. A road of smooth gravel winding round a plantation led to the front. The lawn was dotted over with timber. The house itself was under the guardianship of the fir, the mountain ash, and the acacia, and a thick screen of them altogether interspersed with all Lombardy poplars shut out the offices. Now here I would like to point out one uh, contextual note. Um, this contextual notes and extra information make the reading richer and more interesting, right? Um, this is about the, the Palmer's residence and how it is described. So according to the footnote here, the absence of a park signals Mr. Palmer's social status as one of many moderate landowners newly enriched by wartime prosperity with an estate like every other place of the same degree of importance. The presence of a park 10 miles round at Darcy's Pemberley marks a much higher place in the social structure. The landscaping near the house embellished with gardens, walks and shrubberies demonstrates Mr. Palmer's expensive taste for the latest fashions in picturesque garden design, particularly in the varied mix of decorative tree specimens, including the thick screen with Lombardy poplars used to hide the functional operations of the house. So it's interesting how um, the description of the place um, tells much more than just what it looks like. It tells us something about the Palmer's social place, right? Their social status. So they're newly uh, rich, as they, they, as he puts it, the, the editor, and moderate landowners. So they don't have a park like Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, who has how big a park? Um, 10 miles round, so huge park, because he comes from an old um, uh, aristocratic family. But the Palmers do not come from an old aristocratic family. They have become rich recently with um, business and with the prosperity that some business uh, owners uh, or businessmen got because of the war, the Napoleonic Wars. So a lot of people made money. A lot of people make money with wars. And then to show off, Mr. Palmer tries to decorate, embellish the house with these fashionable types of trees, picturesque gardens to show off, right? Like, look, I'm also, uh, although I was not born an aristocrat, I can be one too, see? Their addresses in London also showed that, right? Okay, so let's continue. Marianne entered the house with her heart swelling with emotion from the consciousness of being only 80 miles from Barton and not 30 from Combe Magna, that's uh, Willoughby's house. And before she had been five minutes within its walls, while the others were busily helping Charlotte show her child to the housekeeper, she quitted it again, stealing away through the winding shrub shrubberies, now just beginning to be in beauty to gain a distant eminence. 
where from its Grecian temple, her eye, wandering over a wide tract of country to the southeast, could fondly rest on the farthest ridge of hills in the horizon and fancy that from their summits Com Magna might be seen. So she cannot actually see Com Magna, it's 30 miles away, but she imagines she can see it. And of course, remember her active imagination. She probably imagines what it would have been like to arrive there, not as herself as she is in the moment, but as Mrs. Willoughby, right? In such moments of precious, of invaluable misery, she rejoiced in tears of agony to be at Cleveland. Remember, she liked to um, enjoy suffering. That's a bit weird to phrase it, but she liked to feel feelings, whatever they were, good or bad. So she, um, she feels them. She rejoices over the... Um, uh, the sentimentality, the, um, the grandiosity of her emotions. And as she returned by a different circuit to the house, feeling all the happy privilege of country liberty, of wandering from place to place in free and luxurious solitude, she resolved to spend almost every hour of every day while she remained with the Palmers in the indulgence of such solitary rambles. She feels free again in nature, um, remember, she was feeling quite trapped in the urban environments uh, in London. She only went to London because she thought she would meet Willoughby. She did, but in very different, under very different circumstances. But now she's happy to be back in the countryside, to be free, to be able to uh, ramble alone, to be able to run wild, do as she pleases. She returned just in time to join the others as they quitted the house on an excursion through its more immediate premises. And the rest of the morning was easily whiled away in lounging round the kitchen garden, examining the bloom upon its walls and listening to the gardener's lamentations upon blights. In dawdling through the greenhouse where the loss of her favorite plants unwarily exposed and nipped by the lingering frost raised the laughter of Charlotte and in visiting her poultry yard where in the disappointed hopes of her dairy mate by hens forsaking their nests or being stolen by a fox or in the rapid decease of a promising young brood she found fresh sources of merriment the morning was fine and dry and Marianne, in her plan of employment abroad, had not calculated for any change of weather during their stay at Cleveland. With great surprise, therefore, did she find herself prevented by a settled rain from going out again after dinner. She had depended on a twilight walk to the Grecian temple and perhaps all over the grounds and an evening merely cold or damp would not have deterred her from it, but heavy and settled rain, even she could not fancy dry or pleasant weather for walking. The party was small, and the hours passed quietly away. Mrs. Palmer had her child, and Mrs. Jennings her carpet work. They talked of the friends they had left behind, arranged Lady Middleton's engagements, and wondered whether Mr. Palmer and Colonel Brandon would get farther than Reading that night. Eleanor, however, little, however little concerned in it, joined in their discourse. 
and Marianne, who had the knack of finding her way in every house to the library, however it might be avoided by the family in general, soon procured herself a book. Nothing was wanting on Mrs. Palmer's side that constant and friendly good humor could do to make them feel themselves welcome. The openness and heartiness of her manner more than atoned for that want of recollection and elegance, which made, which made her often deficient in the forms of politeness. Her kindness, recommended by so pretty a face, was engaging. Her folly, though evident, was not disgusting, because it was not conceited. And Eleanor could have forgiven everything but her laugh. Eleanor is also terrible, right? <laughs> not forgive Mrs. Palmer's laugh. The two gentlemen, Mr. Palmer and Colonel Brandon, arrived the next day to a very late dinner, affording a pleasant enlargement of the party and a very welcome variety to their conversation, which a long morning of the same continued rain had reduced very low. Eleanor had seen so little of Mr. Palmer, and in that little had seen so much variety in his address to her sister and herself, that she knew not what to expect to find him in his own family. She found him, however, perfectly the gentleman in his behavior to all his visitors, and only occasionally rude to his wife and her mother. She found him very capable of being a pleasant companion, and only prevented from being so always by too great an aptitude to fancy himself as much superior to people in general, as he must feel himself to be to Mrs. Jennings and Charlotte. For the rest of his character and habits, they were marked, as far as Eleanor could perceive, with no traits at all unusual in his sex and time of life. He was nice in his eating, uncertain in his hours, fond of his child, though affecting to slight it, and idled away the mornings at billiards, which ought to have been devoted to business. And here Jean Austen is, making, is criticizing men of his uh, people of his sex and time of life, so men in the, what was it, late 20s, that would be nice in his eating, so like picky in his eating, um, uncertain in his hours, so would not follow any strict schedule, and would be fond of the child but pretend not to, and idle away the morning at billiards instead of with work. So he was a typical man of his age and time, and social class, of course. She liked him, however, upon the whole, much better than she had expected, and in her heart was not sorry that she could like him no more, not sorry to be driven by the observation of his epicureism, his selfishness, and his conceit, to rest with complacency on the remembrance of Edward's generous temper, simple taste, and diffident feelings. She's always comparing the man she meets with Edward, right? And now comparing Edward with Mr. Palmer, it only makes Edward seem even better, more honorable than the rest of men. Of Edward, or at least of some of his concerns, she now received intelligence from Colonel Brandon, who had been into Dorsetshire lately, and who, treating her at once as the disinterested friend of Mr. Ferrers and the kind confidante of himself, talked to her a great deal of the parsonage of Delaford, described its deficiencies, and told her what he meant to do himself towards removing them. His behavior to her in this, as well as in every other particular, his open pleasure in meeting her after an absence of only 10 days, 
His readiness to converse with her and his deference for her opinion might very well justify Mrs. Jennings' persuasion of his attachment, and would have been enough, perhaps, had not Eleanor still, as from the first, believed Marianne his real favorite, to make her suspect it herself. But as it was, such a notion had scarcely ever entered her head, except by Mrs. Jennings' suggestion, and she could not help believing herself the nicest observer of the two. She watched his eyes while Mrs. Jennings thought only of his behavior, and while his looks of anxious solicitude on Marian's feeling in her head and throat, the beginning of a heavy cold, because unexpressed by words, entirely escaped the latter lady's observation. She could discover in them the quick feelings and needless alarm of a lover. Two delightful twilight walks on the third and fourth evenings of her being there, not merely on the dry gravel of the shrubbery, but all over the grounds, and especially in the most distant parts of them, where there was something more of wildness than in the rest, where the trees were the oldest and the grass was the longest and wettest, had, assisted by the still greater imprudence of sitting in her wet shoes and stockings, given Marianne a cold so violent as though for a day or two trifled with or denied, would force itself by increasing ailments on the concern of everybody and the notice of herself. Prescriptions poured in from all quarters and, as usual, were all declined. Though heavy and feverish, with a pain in her limbs, a cough and a sore throat, a good night's rest was to cure her entirely, and it was with difficulty that Eleanor prevailed on her when she went to bed to try one or two of the simplest of the remedies. And that is the end of chapter 42, or chapter 6 in volume 3. So there, they've left London, and they are now in Cleveland. And Marianne is happy to be alone again and to be able to do as she wishes no social not as many social obligations as in london she's happy to be around nature again but the weather was terrible was rainy all the time but that did not really prevent her from going outside and because she stayed she even went to the farthest part of the forest where it's wettest and she kept her uh, wet stockings and her wet shoes. She got a very bad cold. But they all believe, especially Eleanor and Marion herself, that one night of rest will be enough to cure her. Very good. So let's continue with chapter 43 or chapter 7, volume 3. Marianne got up the next morning at her usual time. To every inquiry replied that she was better and tried to prove herself so by engaging in her accustomary employments. But a day spent in sitting shivering over the fire with a book in her hand, which she was unable to read, or in lying weary and languid on a sofa, did not speak much in favor of her amendment. And when at last she went early to bed, more and more indisposed, Colonel Brandon was only astonished at her sister composure, who, though attending and nursing her the whole day against Marianne's inclination and forcing proper medicines on her at night, trusted, like Marianne, to the certainty and efficacy of sleep and felt no real alarm. 
A very restless and feverish night, however, disappointed the expectation of both. And when Marianne, after persisting in rising, confessed herself unable to sit up and returned voluntarily to her bed, Eleanor was very ready to adopt Mrs. Jennings' advice of sending for the Palmer's apothecary. Now here I would like to, to tell you something about an apothecary in Regency England. So let's take a look at this note. So an apothecary was a position lower in status in the medical profession than a physician, but respected and the first recourse in a health emergency, especially in the country. So she was ill, she had a fever, but they didn't think it was serious enough to call for a physician. So they called the apothecary, who is someone lower in status in the medical profession. For example, in Charlotte Bronte's novel Jane Eyre from 1847, a wonderful novel, by the way, the heroine harbors a lifelong resentment, among many others, that an apothecary is called for her, but a physician for her wealthy cousins. So you see the difference, the social difference of calling an apothecary also cheaper than a physician, right? But here it's not because of uh, an apothecary would be cheaper, but because they think it's not really a big deal, right? He came, examined his patient, and though encouraging Miss Dashwood to expect that a very few days would restore her sister to health, yet by pronouncing her disorder to have a putrid tendency and allowing the word infection to pass his lips, gave instant alarm to Mrs. Palmer on her baby's account. Mrs. Jennings, who had been inclined from the first to think Marianne's complaint more serious than Eleanor, now looked very grave on Mr. Harry's report, and confirming Charlotte's fears and caution, urged the necessity of her immediate removal with her infant, so that if it's something contagious, the baby would not um, catch it, right? And Mr. Palmer, though treating their apprehension as idle, found the anxiety and importunity of his wife too great to be withstood. Her departure, therefore, was fixed on, and within an hour after Mr. Harry's arrival, she set off with her little boy and his nurse for the house of a near relation of Mr. Palmer's, who lived a few miles on the other side of Bath. Whither her husband promised at her earnest entreaty to join her in a day or two, and whither she was almost equally urgent with her mother to accompany her. Mrs. Jennings, however, with a kindness of heart which made Eleanor really love her, declared her resolution of not stirring from Cleveland as long as Marianne remained ill, and of endeavoring by her own attentive care to supply to her the place of the mother she had taken her from. And Eleanor found her on every occasion a most willing and active helpmate, desirous to share in all her fatigues and often by her better experience in nursing of material use. She's very sweet, although at times very um, um, importunate. Mrs. Jennings is very sweet and she really cares about the girls. Poor Marianne, languid and low from the nature of her malady and feeling herself universally ill, could no longer hope that tomorrow would find her recovered, and the idea of what tomorrow would have produced, but for this unlucky illness, made every ailment more severe. For on that day, they were to have begun their journey home, and attended the whole way by a servant of Mrs. Jennings, were to have taken their mother by surprise on the following forenoon. The little that she said was all in lamentation of this inevitable delay. 
though Eleanor tried to raise her spirits and make her believe, as she then really believed herself, that it would be a very short one. So they could have uh, started their journey home on that day, but Marianne is too ill to travel, so they have to stay a little while longer. The next day produced little or no alteration in the state of the patient. She certainly was not better, and except that there was no amendment, did not appear worse. Their party was now farther reduced. For Mr. Palmer, though very unwilling to go, as well from real humanity and good nature, as from a dislike of appearing to be frightened away by his wife, was persuaded at last by Colonel Brandon to perform his promise of following her. And while he was preparing to go, Colonel Brandon himself, with a much greater exertion, began to talk of going likewise. Here, however, the kindness of Mrs. Jennings interposed most acceptably, for to send the colonel away while his love was in so much uneasiness on her sister's account would be to deprive them both, she thought, of every comfort, and therefore telling him at once that his stay at Cleveland was necessary to herself, that she should want him to play at piquet of an evening, while Miss Dashwood was above with her sister, etc., she urged him so strongly to remain, that he who was gratifying the first wish of his own heart by a compliance could not long even affect to demur, especially as Mrs. Jennings' entreaty was warmly seconded by Mr. Palmer, who seemed to feel a relief to himself in leaving behind him a person so well able to assist or advise Miss Dashwood in any emergence. Um, so Mrs. Jennings thinks, I'm going to do something good here, and she does, but she thinks that Colonel Brandon would like to stay because of his love or attachment to Eleanor, because she would be suffering and anxious because of her sister's health. But in fact, Colonel Brandon, we know, was uh, attached to Marianne. So he was he wanted to stay because he wanted to know what would happen to Marianne. Marianne was, of course, kept in ignorance of all these arrangements. She knew not that she had been the means of sending the owners of Cleveland away in about seven days from the time of their arrival. It gave her no surprise that she saw nothing of Mrs. Palmer, and as it gave her likewise no concern, she never mentioned her name. Two days passed away from the time of Mr. Palmer's departure, and her situation continued with little variation. The same Mrs. Mr. Harris, who attended her every day, still talked boldly of a speedy recovery, and Miss Dashwood was equally sanguine, but the expectation of the others was by no means so cheerful. Mrs. Jennings had determined very early in the seizure that Marianne would never get over it, and Colonel Brandon, who was chiefly of use in listening to Mrs. Jennings' forebodings, was not in a state of mind to resist their influence. He tried to rid himself out of fears, which the different judgment of the apothecary seemed to render absurd, but the many hours of each day in which he was left entirely alone were but too favorable for the admission of every melancholy idea, and he could not expel from his mind the persuasion that he should see Marianne no more. On the morning of the third day, however, the gloomy anticipations of both were almost done away, for when Mr. Harris arrived, he declared his patient materially better. Her pulse was much stronger, and every symptom more favorable than on the preceding visit. Eleanor confirmed in every pleasant hope was all cheerfulness, 
rejoicing that in her letters to her mother she had pursued her own judgment rather than her friends, and making very light of the indisposition which delayed them and Cleveland, and almost fixing on the time when Marian would be able to travel. But the day did not close so auspiciously as it began. Toward the evening, Marianne became ill again, growing more heavy, restless, and uncomfortable than before. Her sister, however, still sanguine, was willing to attribute the change to nothing more than the fatigue of having set up to have her bed made, and carefully administering the cordials prescribed, saw her with satisfaction sink at last into a slumber from which she expected the most beneficial effects. Her sleep, though not so quiet as Eleanor wished to see it, lasted a considerable time, and anxious to observe the result of it herself, she resolved to sit with her during the whole of it. Mrs. Jennings, knowing nothing of any change in the patient, went unusually early to bed. Her maid, who was one of the principal nurses, was recreating herself in the housekeeper's room, and Eleanor remained alone with Marianne. The repose of the letter became more and more disturbed, and her sister, who watched with unremitting attention her continual change of posture, and heard the frequent but inarticulate sounds of complaint which passed her lips, was almost wishing to rouse her from so painful slumber, when Marianne, suddenly awakened by some accidental noise in the house, started hastily up and with feverish wildness cried out, Is Mama coming? Not yet, replied the other, concealing her terror and assisting Marianne to lie down again. But she will be here, I hope, before it is long. It is a great way, you know, from hence to Barton. But she must not go round by London, cried Marianne in the same hurried manner. I shall never see her if she goes by London. She would never go by London, right? Because that's a different direction. Eleanor perceived with alarm that she was not quite herself, and while attempting to soothe her, eagerly felt her pulse. It was lower and quicker than ever. And Marianne, still talking wildly of Mama, her alarm increased so rapidly as to determine her on sending instantly for Mr. Harris and dispatching a messenger to Barton for her mother. To consult with Colonel Brandon on the best means of effecting the letter was a thought which immediately followed the resolution of its performance. And as soon as she had rung up the maid to take her place by her sister, she hastened down to the drawing room where she knew he was generally to be found at a much later hour than the present. So now Eleanor thinks that Marianne's not getting any better. So she calls for the apothecary again immediately and she decides to write to her mother to bring her to Cleveland. It was no time for hesitation. Her fears and her difficulties were immediately before him. Her fears he had no courage, no confidence to attempt the removal of. He listened to them in silent despondence. But her difficulties were instantly obviated, for with a readiness that seemed to speak the occasion and the service prearranged in his mind, he offered himself as the messenger who should fetch Mrs. Dashwood. So Colonel Brandon again, a gentleman, he volunteers himself to go fetch Mrs. Dashwood. Eleanor made no resistance that was not easily overcome. She thanked him with brief, though fervent gratitude, and while he went to hurry off, his servant with a message to Mr. Harris and an order for post horses directly, 
she wrote a few lines to her mother. The comfort of such a friend at that moment as Colonel Brandon, of such a companion for her mother, how gratefully was it felt? A companion whose judgment would guide, whose attendance must relieve, and whose friendship might soothe her. As far as the shock of such a summon could be lessened to her, his presence, his manners, his assistance would lessen it. He, meanwhile, whatever he might feel, acted with all the firmness of a collected mind, made every necessary arrangement with the utmost dispatch, and calculated with exactness the time in which he might look for his return. Not a moment was lost in delay of any kind. The horses arrived even before they were expected, and Colonel Brandon only pressing her hand with a look of solemnity and a few words spoken too low to reach her ear, hurried into the carriage. It was then about twelve o'clock, and she returned to her sister's apartment to wait for the arrival of the apothecary and to watch by her the rest of the night. It was a night of almost equal suffering to both. Hour after hour passed away in sleepless pain and delirium on Marianne's side and in the most cruel anxiety on Eleanor's, before Mr. Harris appeared. Her apprehensions once raised, paid by their excess for all her former security, and the servant who sat up with her, for she would not allow Mrs. Jennings to be called, only tortured her more by hints of what her mistress had always thought. Marianne's ideas were still, at intervals, fixed incoherently on her mother, and whenever she mentioned her name, it gave a pang to the heart of poor Eleanor, who, reproaching herself for having trifled with so many days of illness and wretched for some immediate relief, fancied that all relief might soon be in vain, that everything had been delayed too long, and pictured to herself her suffering mother arriving too late to see this darling child or to see her rational. So now Eleanor is suffering even more because she thinks she has waited too long. She has trifled with this illness, thinking it was nothing. And day after day, Ellen, uh, Marianne has not recovered. It's been three, more than three days. So she now Eleanor feels she should have called her mother earlier because she fears that when her mother arrives, either Marianne will be no more or will not even be rational anymore. She was on the point of sending again for Mr. Harris, or if he could not come, for some other advice, when the former, but not still after five o'clock, arrived. So from 12 o'clock at night till five o'clock in the morning, the Eleanor spent in this anxiety waiting for the apothecary. His opinion, however, made some little amends for his delay, for though acknowledging a very unexpected and unpleasant alteration in his patient, he would not allow the danger to be material, and talked of the relief which a fresh mode of treatment must procure, with a confidence which, in a lesser degree, was communicated to Eleanor. He promised to call again in the course of three or four hours, and left both the patient and her anxious attendant more composed than he had found them. With strong concern and with many reproaches for not being called to their aid, did Mr. Mrs. Jennings hear in the morning of what had passed. Her former apprehensions, now with greater reason restored, left her no doubt of the event. And though trying to speak comfort to Eleanor, her conviction of her sister's danger would not allow her to offer the comfort of hope. Her heart was really grieved. The rapid decay, the early death of a girl so young, so lovely as Marianne, must have struck a less interested person with concern. 
On Mrs. Jenny's compassion, she had other claims. She had been for three months her companion, was still under her care, and she was known to have been greatly injured and long unhappy. The distress of her sister too, particularly a favorite, was before her. And as for their mother, when Mrs. Jennings considered that Marianne might probably be to her what Charlotte was to herself, her sympathy in her sufferings was very sincere. Mr. Harris was punctual in his second visit, but he came to be disappointed in his hopes of what the last would produce. His medicines had failed, the fever was unabated, and Marianne, only more quiet, not more herself, remained in a heavy stupor. Elnor, catching all and more than all his fear in a moment, proposed to call in farther advice. But he judged it unnecessary. He had still something more to try, some fresh application, of whose success he was almost as confident as the last, and his visit concluded with encouraging assurances which reached the ear but could not enter the heart of Miss Dashwood. She was calm except when she thought of her mother, but she was almost hopeless, and in this state she continued till noon, scarcely stirring from her sister's bed, her thoughts wandering from one image of grief, one suffering friend to another, and her spirits oppressed to the utmost by the conversation of Mrs. Jennings, who scrupled not to attribute the severity and danger of this attack to the many weeks of previous indisposition which Marianne's disappointment had brought on. Eleanor felt all the reasonableness of the idea, and it gave fresh misery to her reflections. About noon, however, she began, but with a caution, a dread of disappointment, which for some time kept her silent, even to her friend, to fancy, to hope she could perceive a slight amendment in her sister's pulse. She waited, watched, and examined it again and again. And at last, with an agitation more difficult to bury under exterior calmness than all her foregoing distress, ventured to communicate her hopes. Mrs. Jennings, though forced on examination to acknowledge a temporary revival, tried to keep her young friend from indulging a thought of its continuance. And Eleanor, conning over every injunction of distrust, told herself likewise not to hope. But it was too late. Hope had already entered, and feeling all its anxious flutter, she bent over her sister to watch. She hardly knew for what. Half an hour passed away, and the favorable symptom yet blessed her. Others even arose to confirm it. Her breath, her skin, her lips, all flattered Eleanor with signs of amendment, and Marianne fixed her eyes on her with a rational, though languid gaze. Anxiety and hope now oppressed her in equal degrees and left her no moment of tranquility till the arrival of Mr. Harry's at four o'clock, when his assurances, his felicitations on a recovery in her sister, even surpassing his expectation, gave her confidence, comfort, and tears of joy. So it was 12 o'clock in the evening. Uh, Eleanor was sitting with her sister, and now it is four o'clock the next day, so 16 hours later and Marianne has not slept, has not left the side of her sister's bed. Now she dares to hope. Marianne was in every respect materially better, and he declared her entirely out of danger. Mrs. Jennings, perhaps satisfied with the partial justification of her forebodings, which had been found in their late alarm, allowed herself 
to trust in his judgment and admitted with unfeigned joy and soon with unequivocal cheerfulness the probability of an entire recovery. Eleanor could not be cheerful. Her joy was of a different kind and led to anything rather than to gaiety. Marianne restored to life, health, friends, and to her doting mother was an idea to fill her heart with sensations of exquisite comfort and expanded in fervent gratitude. But it led to no outward demonstrations of joy, no words, no smiles. All within Eleanor's breast was satisfaction, silent and strong. Silent and strong satisfaction. She feels it all, but she does not let it show. She continued by the side of her sister with little intermission the whole afternoon, calming every fear, satisfying every inquiry of her enfeebled spirits, supplying every succor and watching almost every look and every breath. The possibility of a relapse would, of course, in some moments, occur to remind her of what anxiety was. But when she saw on her frequent, frequent and minute examination that every symptom of recovery continued and saw Marianne at six o'clock sink into a quiet, steady and to all appearance comfortable sleep, she silenced every doubt. The time was now drawing on when Colonel Brandon might be expected back. At 10 o'clock, she trusted, or at least not much later, her mother would be relieved from the dreadful suspense in which she must now be traveling towards them. The colonel, too, perhaps scarcely less an object of pity. Oh, how slow was the progress of time which yet kept them in ignorance. At 7 o'clock, leaving Marianne still sweetly asleep, she joined Mrs. Jennings in the drawing room to tea. Of breakfast, she had been capped by her fears and of dinner by their sudden reverse from eating much, and the present refreshment, therefore, with such feelings of content as she brought to it, was particularly welcome. Mrs. Jennings would have persuaded her at its conclusion to take some rest before her mother's arrival and allow her to take her place by Marianne. But Eleanor had no sense of fatigue, no capability of sleep at that moment about her, and she was not to be kept away from her sister an unnecessary instant. It's so beautiful, their, their connection, right? Their relationship. And Eleanor does not leave the side of her sister throughout. Mrs. Jennings, therefore, attending her upstairs into the sick chamber to satisfy herself that all continued right, left her there again to her charge and her thoughts and retired to her own room to write letters and sleep. The night was cold and stormy. The wind roared round the house and the rain beat against the windows. But Eleanor, all happiness within, regarded it not. Marianne slept through every blast, and the travelers, they had a rich reward in store for every present inconvenience. The clock struck eight. Had it been ten, Eleanor would have been convinced that at that moment she heard a carriage driving up to the house. And so strong was the persuasion that she did, in spite of the almost impossibility of their being already come, that she moved into the adjoining dressing closet and opened a window, window shutter to be satisfied of the truth. She instantly saw that her ears had not deceived her. The flaring lamps of a carriage were immediately in view. By their uncertain light, she thought she could discern it to be drawn by four horses. And this, while it told the excess of her poor mother's alarm, gave some explanation to such unexpected rapidity. Never in her life had Eleanor found it so difficult to be calm as at that moment. The knowledge of what her mother must be feeling as that carriage stopped at the door 
of her doubt, her dread, perhaps her despair, and of what she had to tell, with such knowledge it was impossible to be calm. All that remained to be done was to be speedy, and therefore staying only till she could leave Mrs. Jennings' maid with her sister, she hurried downstairs. The bustle in the vestibule as she passed along an inner lobby assured her that they were already in the house. She rushed forwards towards the drawing room. She entered it and saw only Willoughby. Mm -hmm. And that is the end of chapter 43 or chapter 7 from volume 3. So what is Willoughby doing there? What do you think? Let me know, what do you think Willoughby is doing there in this stormy night? Out of nowhere, he arrives there. Um, we'll see. Let's find out as we read chapter 44 or chapter 8 in volume 3. Eleanor, starting back with a look of horror at the sight of him, obeyed the first impulse of her heart and turning instantly to quit the room, and her hand was already on the lock when its action was suspended by his hastily advancing and saying in a voice rather of command than supplication, Miss Dashwood, for half an hour, ten minutes, I entreat you to stay. No, sir, she replied with firmness. I shall not stay. Your business cannot be with me. The servants, I suppose, forgot to tell you that Mr. Palmer was not in the house. Had they told me, he cried with vehemence, that Mr. Palmer and all his relations were at the devil, it would not have turned me from the door. My business is with you and only you. With me, in the utmost amazement. Well, sir, be quick, and if you can, less violent. Sit down and I will be both. She hesitated. She knew not what to do. The possibility of Colonel Brandon's arriving and finding him there came across her, but she had promised to hear him and her curiosity no less than her honor was engaged. After a moment's recollection, therefore, concluding that prudence required dispatch and that her acquiescence would best promote it, she walked silently towards the table and sat down. He took the opposite chair and for half a minute, not a word was said by either. Pray be quick, sir, said Eleanor impatiently. I have no time to spare. He was sitting in an attitude of deep meditation and seemed not to hear her. Your sister, said he with abruptness a moment afterwards, is out of danger. I heard it from the servant. God be praised. But is it true? Is it really true? Eleanor would not speak. He repeated the inquiry with yet greater eagerness. For God's sake, tell me, is she out of danger or is she not? We hope she is. He rose up and walked across the room. Had I known as much half an hour ago? But since I am here, speaking with a forced vivacity as he returned to his seat, what does it signify? For once, Miss Dashwood, it will be the last time, perhaps. Let us be cheerful together. I am in a fine mood for gaiety. Tell me honestly. A deeper glow overspreading his cheeks. Do you think me most a knave or a fool? Eleanor looked at him with greater astonishment than ever. She began that he she began to think that he must be in liquor. The strangeness of such a visit and of such manners seemed no otherwise intelligible. 
and with this impression she immediately rose, saying, Mr. Willoughby, I advise you at present to return to Combe. I am not at leisure to remain with you longer. Whatever your business may be with me, it will be better recollected and explained tomorrow. I understand you, he replied with an expressive smile and a voice perfectly calm. Yes, I am very drunk. A pint of porter with my cold beef at Marlborough was enough to overset me. At Marlborough, cried Eleanor more and more at a loss to understand what he would be at. Yes, I left London this morning at eight o'clock, and the only ten minutes I have spent out of my chaise since that time procured me a luncheon at Marlborough. The steadiness of his manner and the intelligence of his eye as he spoke, convincing Eleanor that whatever other unpardonable folly might bring him to Cleveland, he was not brought there by intoxication, she said after a moment's recollection. Mr. Willoughby, you ought to feel, and I certainly do, that after what has passed, your coming here in this manner and forcing yourself upon my notice requires a very particular excuse. What is it that you mean by it? I mean, said he with serious energy, if I can to make you hate me one degree less than you do now, I mean to offer some kind of explanation, some kind of apology for the past, to open my whole heart to you, and by convincing you that though I have been always a blockhead, I have not always been a rascal to obtain something like forgiveness from Matt, from your sister. Is this the real reason of your coming? Upon my soul it is, was his answer with a warmth which brought all the former Willoughby to her remembrance, and in spite of herself made her think him sincere. If that is all, you may be satisfied already, for Marianne does, she has long forgiven you. Has she? He cried in the same eager tone. Then she has forgiven me before she ought to have done it. But she shall forgive me again and on more reasonable grounds. Now will you listen to me? Eleanor bowed her assent. I do not know, said he after a pause of expectation on her side and thoughtfulness on his own, how you may have accounted for my behavior to your sister or what diabolical motive you may have imputed to me. Perhaps you will hardly think the better of me. It is worth the trial, however, and you shall hear everything. When I first became intimate in your family, I had no other intention, no other view in the acquaintance than to, pa than to pass my time pleasantly while I was obliged to remain in Devonshire, more pleasantly than I had ever done before. Your sister's lovely person and interesting manners could not but please me, and her behavior to me almost from the first was of a kind. It is astonishing when I reflect on what it was and what she was that my heart should have been so insensible. But at first, I must confess, my vanity only was elevated by it. Careless of her happiness, thinking only of my own amusement, giving way to feelings which I had always been too much in the habit of indulging, I endeavored by every means in my power to make myself pleasing to her without any design of returning her affection. So now Gluby wants to explain himself to Eleanor. And he admits that in the beginning, when he arrived there, um, as he does, as he would every year spend some time at uh, in Devonshire with his aunt, he said in the beginning, he had no serious inclination or no serious prospects with Marianne. He just wanted to have fun 
while he had to be to be there. So he had no plans of returning Marianne's affection. Miss Dashwood, at this point, turning her eyes on him with the most angry contempt, stopped him by saying, It is hardly worthwhile, Mr. Willoughby, for you to relate or for me to listen any longer. Such a beginning as this cannot be followed by anything. Do not let me, do not let me be pained by hearing anything more on the subject. I insist on you hearing, on your hearing the whole of it, he replied. My fortune was never large, and I had always been expensive, always in the habit of associating with people of better income than myself. Every year since my coming of age, or even before, I believe, had added to my debts. And though the death of my old cousin, Mrs. Smith, was to set me free, yet that event being uncertain and possibly far distant, it had been for some time my intention to re-establish my circumstances by marrying a woman of fortune. To attach myself to your sister, therefore, was not a thing to be thought of. And with a meanness, selfishness, cruelty, which no indignant, no contemptuous look, even of yours, Miss Dashwood, can ever reprobate too much, I was acting in this manner, trying to engage her regard without a thought of returning it. But one thing may be said for me, even in that horrid state of selfish vanity. I did not know the extent of the injury I meditated, because I did not then know what it was to love. But have I ever known it? Well may it be doubted, for had I really loved, could I have sacrificed my feelings to vanity, to avarice? Or what is more, could I have sacrificed hers? But I have done it to avoid a comparative poverty which her affection and her society would have deprived of all its horrors. I have, by raising myself to affluence, lost everything that could make it a blessing. So Willoughby's plan was all along to marry a woman of fortune so that he could continue with, with his expensive lifestyle. He had uh, piled up a lot of debts. But he never thought that he would really feel something for Marianne. You did then, said Eleanor, a little softened, believe yourself at one time attached to her. To have resisted such attractions, to have withstood such tenderness, is there a man on earth who could have done it? Yes, I found myself by insensible degrees sincerely fond of her, and the happiest hours of my life were what I spent with her when I felt my intentions were strictly honorable and my feelings blameless. Even then, however, when fully determined on paying my addresses to her, I allowed myself most improperly to put off from day to day the moment of doing it, from an unwillingness to enter into an engagement while my circumstances were so greatly embarrassed. I will not reason here, nor will I stop for you to expatiate on the absurdity and the worse than absurdity of scrupling to engage my faith where my honor was already bound. The event has proved that I was a cunning fool, providing with great circumspection for a possible opportunity of making myself contemptible and wretched forever. At last, however, my resolution was taken, and I had determined, as soon as I could engage her alone, to justify the attentions I had so invariably paid her, and openly assure her of an affection which I had already taken such pains to display. So he was, he had determined that he would, he would 
commit to Marianne, he would propose. But in the interim, in the interim of the very few hours that were to pass before I could have an opportunity of speaking with her in private, a circumstance occurred, an unlucky circumstance to ruin all my resolution and with it all my comfort. A discovery took place. Here he hesitated and looked down. Mrs. Smith had somehow or other been informed, I imagine by some distant relation whose interest it was to deprive me of her favor, of an affair, a connection, but I need not explain myself farther. He added, looking at her with a heightened color and in, an inquiring eye, your particular intimacy, you have probably heard the, the whole story long ago. Here he is now referring to Miss Williams, remember Colonel Brandon's protege, that Willoughby uh, ran away with and abandoned her when she was pregnant. So his aunt, Mrs. Smith, heard of this scandal. I have returned Eleanor coloring likewise and hardening her heart anew against any compassion for him. I have heard it all and you will explain away and how you will explain away any part of your guilt in that dreadful business, I confess is beyond my comprehension. Remember, cried Willoughby, from whom you received the account. Could it be an impartial one? I acknowledge that her situation and her character ought to have been respected by me. I do not mean to justify myself, but at the same time cannot leave you to suppose that I have nothing to urge, that because she was injured, she was irreproachable, and because I was a libertine, she must be a saint. If the violence of her passions, the weakness of her understanding, I do not mean, however, to defend myself. Her affection for me deserved better treatment. And I often, with great self-reproach, recall the tenderness which for a very short time had the power of creating any return. I wish, I heartily wish it had never been, but I have injured more than herself, and I have injured one whose affection for me, may I say it, was scarcely less warm than hers, and whose mind, oh, how infinitely superior. Your indifference, however, towards that unfortunate girl, I must say, I must say it, unpleasant to me as the discussion of such a subject may well be. Your indifference is no apology for your cruel neglect of her. Do not think yourself excused by any weakness, any natural defect of understanding on her side in the wanton cruelty so evident on yours. You must have known that while you were enjoying yourself in Devonshire, pursuing fresh schemes, always gay, always happy, she was reduced to the extremest indigence. But upon my soul, I did not know it, he warmly replied. I did not recollect that I had omitted to give her my directions. Now, is that true or not? And common sense might have told her how to find it out. Well, sir, in what said Mrs. Smith? She taxed me with the offense at once, and my confusion may be guessed. The purity of her life, the formality of her notions, her ignorance of the world, everything was against me. The matter itself I could not deny, and vain was every endeavor to soften it. She was previously disposed, I believe, to doubt the morality of my conduct in general, and was moreover discontented with the very little attention, the very little portion of my time that I had bestowed on her in my present visit. In short, it ended in a total breach. By one measure I might have saved myself. 
In the height of her morality, good woman, she offered to forgive the past if I would marry Eliza. That is, said uh, the girl who was pregnant with his baby. That could not be, and I was formally dismissed from her favor and her house. The night following this affair, I was to go the next morning, was spent by me in deliberating on what my future conduct should be. The struggle was great, but it ended too soon. My affection for Marianne, my through conviction of her attachment to me, it was all insufficient to outweigh that dread of poverty or get the better of those false ideals of the necessity of riches, which I was naturally inclined to feel, and expensive society had increased. I had reason to believe myself secure of my present wife if I chose to address her, and I persuaded myself to think that nothing else in common prudence remained for me to do. A heavy scene, however, awaited me before I could leave Devonshire. I was engaged to dine with you on that very day. Some apology was therefore necessary for my breaking the engagement. But whether I should write this apology or deliver it in person was a point of long debate. To see Marianne, I felt would be dreadful, and I even doubted whether I could see her again and keep to my resolution. In that point, however, I undervalued my own magn magn magnanimity as the event declared. For I went, I saw her, and saw her miserable, and left her miserable, and left her hoping never to see me again. Why did you call, Mr. Willoughby? said Eleanor reproachfully. A note would have answered every purpose. Why was it necessary to call? It was necessary to my own pride. I did not bear to leave the country in a manner that might lead you or the rest of the neighborhood to suspect any part of what had really passed between Mrs. Smith and myself, and I resolved, therefore, on calling at the cottage in my way to Huntington. The sight of your dear sister, however, was really dreadful, and to heighten the matter I found her alone. You were all gone, I do not know where. I had left her only the evening before, so fully, so firmly resolved within myself on doing right. A few hours were to have engaged her to me forever, and I remember how happy, how gay were my spirits as I delighted with everybody. But in this, our last interview of friendship, I approached her with a sense of guilt that almost took from me the power of dissembling. Her sorrow, her disappointment, her deep regret. When I told her that I was obliged to leave Devonshire so immediately, I never shall forget it. United to with such reliance, such confidence in me, oh God, what a hard-hearted rascal I was. They were both silent for a few moments. Eleanor first spoke. Did you tell her that you should soon return? I do not know what I told her, he replied impatiently. Less than what was less than was due to the past, beyond doubt, and in all likelihood much more than was justified by the future. I cannot think of it. I won't it won't do. Then came your dear mother to torture me farther. With all her kindness and confidence. Thank heaven it did torture me. I was miserable. Miss Dashwood, you cannot have an idea of the comfort it gives me to look back on my own misery. I owe such a grudge to myself for the stupid, rascally folly of my own heart that all my past sufferings under it are only triumph and exultation to me now. Well, I went, left all that I loved, and went to those to whom, at best, I was only indifferent. My journey to town, traveling with my own horses, and therefore so tediously, no creature to speak to, 
my own reflection so cheerful, when I looked forward to everything so inviting, when I looked back at Barton, the picture so soothing, oh, it was a blessed journey. He stopped. Well, sir, said Eleanor, who, though pitying him, grew impatient for his departure. And this is all. All? No, have you forgot what passed in town? That infamous letter, did she show it to you? Yes, I saw every note that passed. When the first of hers reached me, as it immediately did, for I was in town the whole time, what I felt is, in the common phrase not to be expressed in a more simple one, perhaps too simple to raise any emotion, my feelings were very, very painful. Every line, every word was, in the hackney metaphor which their dear writer, were she here, would forbid, a dagger to my heart. To know that Marianne was in town was, in the same language, a thunderbolt. Thunderbolts and daggers, what a reproof would she have given me? Her taste, her opinions, I believe they are better known to me than my own, and I am sure they are dearer. Eleanor's heart, which had undergone many changes in the course of this extraordinary conversation, was not was now softened again, yet she felt it her duty to check such ideas in her companion as the last. This is not right, Mr. Willoughby. Remember that you are married. Relate only what in your conscience you think necessary for me to hear. Marianne's note, by assuring me that I was still as dear to her as in former days, that in spite of the many, many weeks we had been separated, she was a constant in her own feelings and as full of faith in the constancy of mine as ever, awakened all my remorse. I say awakened because time in London, business and dissipation had in some measure quieted it, and I had been growing a fine hardened villain, fancying myself indifferent to her and choosing to fancy that she too must have become indifferent to me talking to myself of our past attachment as a mere idle trifling business, shrugging up my shoulders in proof of its being so, and silencing every reproach, overcoming every scruple by secretly saying now and then, I shall be heartily glad to hear she is well married. But this note made me know myself better. I felt that she was infinitely dearer to me than any other woman in the world, and that I was using her infamously. But everything was then just settled between Miss Gray and me, to retreat was impossible. All that I had to do was to avoid you both. I sent no answer to Marianne, intending by that means to preserve myself from her farther notice. And for some time, I was even determined not to call in Berkeley Street. But at last, judging it wiser to affect the air of a cool, common acquaintance than anything else, I watched you all safely out of the house one morning and left my name. Watched us out of the house? Even so, you would be surprised to hear how often I watched you, how often I was on the point of falling in with you. I have entered many a shop to avoid your sight as the carriage drove by. Lodging, as I did in Bond Street, there was hardly a day in which I did not catch a glimpse of one or other of you. And nothing but the most constant watchfulness on my side, a most invariably prevailing desire to keep out of your sight, could have separated us so long. I avoided the Middletons as much as possible, as well as everybody else who was likely to prove an acquaintance in common. Not aware of their being in town, however, I blundered on Sir John, I believe, the first day of his coming, and the day after I had called at Mrs. Jennings. He asked me to a party, a dance at his house in the evening. 
Had he not told me as an inducement that you and your sister were to be there, I should have felt it too certain a thing to trust myself near him. The next morning brought another short note from Marianne, still affectionate, open, artless, conf confiding, everything that could make my conduct most hateful. I could not answer it. I tried, but could not frame a sentence. But I thought of her, I believe, every moment of the day. If you can pity me, Miss Dashwood, pity my, my situation as it was then. With my head and heart full of your sister, I was forced to play the happy lover to another woman. Those three or four weeks were worse than all. Well, at last, as I need not tell you, you were forced on me. And what a sweet figure I cut. What an evening of agony it was. Marianne, beautiful as an angel, on one side, calling me Willoughby in such a tone. Oh, God. Holding out her hand to me, asking me for an explanation with those bewitching eyes fixed in such speaking solicitude on my face. And Sophia, jealous as the devil on the other hand, looking all that was. Well, it does not signify. It is over now. Such an evening. I ran away from you all as soon as I could but not before I had seen Marion's sweet face as white as death. That was the last, last look I ever had of her, the last manner in which she appeared to me. It was a horrid sight. Yet when I thought of her today as really dying, it was a kind of comfort to me to imagine that I knew exactly how she would appear to those who saw her last in this world. She was before me, constantly before me, as I traveled in the same look and hue. A short pause of mutual thoughtfulness succeeded. Willoughby first, rousing himself, broke it thus. Well, let me make haste and be gone. Your sister is certainly better, certainly out of danger. We are assured of it. Your poor mother, too, doting on Marianne. But the letter, Mr. Willoughby, your own letter, have you anything to say about that? Oh, yes, yes, that in particular. Your sister wrote to me again, you know, the very next morning. You saw what she said. I was breakfasting at the Allison's, and her letter, with some others, was brought to me there from my lodgings. It happened to catch Sophia's eye before it caught mine, and its size, the elegance of the paper, the handwriting altogether, immediately gave her a suspicion. Some vague report had reached her before of my attachment to some young lady in Devonshire, and what had passed within her observation the preceding evening had marked who the young lady was and made her more jealous than ever. Affecting the, that air of playfulness, therefore, which is delightful in a woman one loves, she opened the letter directly and read its contents. She was well paid for her impudence. She read what made her wretched. Her wretchedness I could have borne, but her passion, her malice, at all events it must be appeased. And, in short, what do you think of my wife's style of letter writing? Delicate, tender, truly feminine, was it not? Your wife! The letter was in your own handwriting. Yes, but I had only the credit of servilely copying such sentences as I was ashamed to put my name to. The original was all her own her own happy thoughts and gentle diction. But what could I do? We were engaged, everything in preparation, the day almost fixed. But I am talking like a fool. Preparation, day. In honest words, her money was necessary to me, and in a situation like mine, anything was to be done to prevent a rupture. And after all, what did it signify to my character in the opinion of Marianne and her friends, in what language my answer was couched? It must have been only to 
one end. My business was to declare myself a scoundrel, and whether I did it with a bow or a bluster was of little importance. I am ruined forever in their opinion, said I to myself. I am shut out forever from their society. They already think me an unprincipled fellow. This letter will only make them think me a blackguard one. Such were my reasonings, as in a sort of desperate carelessness, I copied my wife's words and parted with the last relics of Marianne. Her three notes, unluckily they were all in my pocketbook, or I should have denied their existence and hoarded them forever. I was forced to put them up and could not even kiss them. And the lock of hair, that too I had always carried about me in the same pocketbook, which was now searched by a madam with the most ingratiating virulence. The dear lock, all, every memento was torn from me. You are very wrong, Mr. Willoughby, very blamable said Eleanor, while her voice, in spite of herself, betrayed her compassionate emotion. You ought not to speak in this way, either of Mrs. Willoughby or my sister. You have made your own choice. It was not forced on you. Your wife has a claim to your politeness, to your respect, at least. She must be attached to you, or she would not have married you. To treat her with unkindness, to speak of her slightingly, is no atonement to Marianne, nor can I suppose it a relief to your own conscience. Eleanor is great, right? Giving Willoughby a lesson here. Do not talk of my wife, said he with a heavy sigh. She does not deserve your compassion. She knew I had no regard for her when we married. Well, married we were and came down to Combe Magna to be happy and afterwards returned to town to be gay. And now do you pity me, Miss Dashwood? Or have I said all this to no purpose? Am I, be it only one degree, am I less guilty in your opinion than I was before? My intentions were not always wrong. Have I explained away any part of my guilt? Yes, you have certainly removed something, a little. You have proved yourself, on the whole, less faulty than I had believed you. You have proved your heart less wicked, much less wicked. But I hardly know the misery that you have inflicted. I hardly know what could have made it worse. Will you repeat to your sister when she is recovered what I have been telling you? Let me be a little lightened too in her opinion as well as in yours. You tell me that she has forgiven me already. Let me be able to fancy that a better knowledge of my heart and of my present feelings will draw from her a more spontaneous, more natural, more gentle, less dignified forgiveness. Tell her of my misery and my penitence. Tell her that my heart was never inconstant to her. And if you will, that at this moment she is dearer to me than ever. I will tell her all that is necessary to what may comparatively be called your justification. But you have not explained to me the particular reason of your coming now, nor how you heard of her illness. Last night in Drury Lane lobby, Drury Lane is a theatre in London, I ran against Sir John Middleton, and when he saw who I was, for the first time these two months, he spoke to me that he had cut me ever since my marriage I had seen without surprise or resentment. Now, however, his good-natured, honest, stupid soul, full of indignation against me and concern for your sister, could not resist the temptation of telling me that what he knew ought to, though probably he did not think it would vex me horribly. As bluntly as he could speak it, therefore, he told me that Marian Dashwood was dying of a putrid fever at Cleveland. A letter that morning received from Mrs. Jennings declared her danger most imminent. 
The Palmers all gone off in a fright, etc. I was too much shocked to be able to pass myself off as insensible even to the undiscerning Sir John. His heart was softened in seeing mine suffer. And so much of his ill will was done away that when we parted, he almost shook me by the hand while he reminded me of an old promise about a pointer puppy. What I felt on hearing that your sister was dying, and dying too, believing me the greatest villain upon earth, scorning, hating me in her latest moments, for how could I tell what horrid projects might not have been imputed? One person I was sure would represent me as capable of anything. What I felt was dreadful. My resolution was as was soon made, and at eight o'clock this morning I was in my carriage. Now you know all. Eleanor made no answer. Her thoughts were silently fixed on the irreparable injury which too early an independence and its consequent habits of idleness, dissipation, and luxury had made in the mind, the character, the happiness of a man who, to every advantage of person and talents, united a disposition naturally open and honest and a feeling affectionate temper. The world had made him extravagant and vain. Extravagance and vanity had made him cold-hearted and selfish. You see Jane Austen's criticism here. So Willoughby is a good man. He was a good man. But extravagance and vanity had made him cold-hearted. The world, society of the time, made him vain and extravagant. Vanity, while seeking its own guilty triumph at the expense of another, had involved him in a real attachment with extravagance, or at least its offspring, necessity, had required to be sacrificed. Each faulty propensity in leading him to evil and led him likewise to punishment. The attachment from which against honor, against feeling, against every better interest he had outwardly torn himself, now when no longer allowable, governed every thought, and the connection for the sake of which he had, with little scruple, left her sister to misery, was likely to prove a source of unhappiness to himself of a far more incurable nature. From a reverie of this kind, she was recalled at the end of some minutes by Willoughby, who, rousing himself from a reverie at least equally painful, started up in preparation for going and said, There is no use in staying here. I must be off. Are you going back to town? No, to Coma Magna. I have business there. From thence to town in a day or two. Goodbye. He held out his hand. She could not refuse to give him hers. He pressed it with affection. And you do think something better of me than you did, said he, letting it fall and leaning against the mantelpiece as if forgetting he was to go. Eleanor assured him that she did, that she forgave, pitied, wished him well, was even interested in his happiness, and added some gentle counsel as to the behavior most likely to promote it. His answer was not very encouraging. As to that, said he, I must rub through the world as well as I can. Domestic happiness is out of the question. If, however, I am allowed to think that you and yours feel an interest in my fate, my fate and actions, it may be the means, it may put me on my guard. At least it will be something to live for. Marianne, to be sure, is lost to me forever. Were I even by any blessed chance at liberty again? Elnor stopped him with a reproof. Well... He replied, once more, goodbye. I shall now go away and live in dread of one event. What do you mean? Your sister's marriage. 
You're very wrong. She can never be more lost to you than she is now. But she will be gained by someone else. And if that someone should be the very he whom of all others I could less, least bear, but I will not stay to rob myself of all your compassionate goodwill by showing that where I have most injured I can least forgive. Goodbye. God bless you. And with these words, he almost ran out of the room. Now, this is something interesting, right? How Willoughby comes back after all this time to make, to give an explanation and to give an apology so that Marianne, he was afraid that Marianne would die and die believing him a villain so that Marianne and Eleanor could more or less understand why he did what he did, even though um, it was a selfish thing to do, but maybe they could understand it a little bit and think less evil of him. All right, so let's move on to the last chapter we are discussing today, chapter 45 or chapter 9 from volume 3. Eleanor, for some time after he left her, for some time even after the sound of his carriage had died away, remained too much oppressed by a crowd of ideas, while it differing in themselves, but of which sadness was the general result, to think even of her sister. Willoughby, he, now remember that um, Eleanor always rationalizes, right? So now that he has left, he, he needs the time quietly to think and rationalize. Willoughby, he, whom only half an hour ago she had abhorred as the most worthless of men, Willoughby, in spite of all his faults, excited a degree of commiseration for the sufferings produced by them, which made her think of him as now separated forever from her family with a tenderness, a regret rather in proportion, as she soon acknowledged within herself, to his wishes than to his merits. She felt that his influence over her mind was heightened by circumstances which are not in reason to have weight, by that person of uncommon attraction, that open, affectionate, and lively manner which it was no merit to possess, and by that still ardent love for Marianne, which it was not even innocent to indulge. But she felt that it was so long, long that it but she felt that it was so long, long before she could feel his influence less. When at last she returned to the unconscious Marianne, she found her just awaking, refreshed by so long and sweet a sleep to the extent of her hopes. Eleanor's heart was full. The past, the present, the future, Willoughby's visit, Marianne's safety, and her mother's expected arrival threw her altogether into an agitation of spirits which kept off every indication of fatigue and made her only fearful of betraying herself to her sister. And she had not slept for a day, more than a day, right? Short was the time, however, in which that fear could affect her. For within half an hour after Willoughby's leaving the house, she was again called downstairs by the sound of another carriage. Eager to save her mother from every unnecessary moment's horrible suspense, she ran immediately into the hall and reached the outward door just in time to receive and support her as she entered it. Mrs. Dashwood, whose terror as they drew near the house had produced almost the conviction of Marian's being no more, had no voice to inquire after her, no voice even for Eleanor. But she, waiting neither for salutation nor inquiry, instantly gave the joyful relief. And her mother, catching it with all her usual warmth, 
was in a moment as much overcome by her happiness as she had been before by her fears. She was supported into the drawing room between her daughter and her friend, and there, shedding tears of joy, though still unable to speak, embraced Eleanor again and again, turning from her at intervals to press Colonel Brandon's hand with a look which spoke at once her gratitude and her conviction of his sharing with herself in the bliss of the moment. He shared it, however, in a silence even greater than her own. As soon as Mrs. Dashwood had recovered herself, to see Marianne was her first desire, and in two minutes she was with her beloved child, rendered dearer to her than ever by absence, unhappiness, and danger. Eleanor's delight, as she saw what each felt in the meeting, was only checked by an apprehension of its robbing Marianne of farther sleep. But Mrs. Dashwood could be calm, could be even prudent, when the life of a child was at stake. And Marianne, satisfied in knowing her mother was near her and conscious of being too weak for conversation, submitted readily to the silence and quiet prescribed by every nurse around her. Mrs. Dashwood would sit up with her all night, and Eleanor, in compliance with her mother's entreaty, went to bed. But the rest, which one night entirely sleepless and many hours of the most weary anxiety seemed to make requisite, was kept off by irritation of spirits. Willoughby, poor Willoughby, as she now allowed herself to call him, was constantly in her thoughts. She would not but have heard his vindication for the world, and now blamed, now acquitted herself for having judged him so harshly before. But her promise of relating it to her sister was invariably painful. She dreaded the performance of it, dreaded what its effect on Marian might be, doubted whether after such an explanation she could ever be happy with another, and for a moment wished Willoughby a widower. Then, remembering Colonel Brandon, reproved herself, felt that to his felt that to his sufferings and his constancy, far more than to his rivals, the reward of her sister was due, and wished anything rather than Mrs. Willoughby's death. The shock of Colonel Brandon's errand at Barton had been much softened to Mrs. Dashwood by her own previous alarm, for so great was her uneasiness about Marianne that she had already determined to set out for Cleveland on that very day without waiting for any farther intelligence and had so far settled her journey before his arrival, the carries were then expected every moment to fetch Margaret away, as her mother was unwilling to take her where there might be infection. Marianne continued to mend every day, and the brilliant cheerfulness of Mrs. Dashwood's looks and spirits proved her to be, as she repeatedly declared herself, one of the happiest women in the world. Eleanor could not hear the declaration, nor witness its proofs without sometimes wondering whether her mother ever recollected Edward. But Mrs. Dashwood, trusting to the temperate account of her own disappointment, which Eleanor had sent her, was led away by the exuberance of her joy to think only of what would increase it. Marianne was restored to her from a danger in which, as she now began to feel, her own mistaken judgment in encouraging the unfortunate attachment to Willoughby had contributed to place her. And in her recovery, she had yet another source of joy unthought of by Eleanor. It was thus imparted to her as soon as any opportunity of private conference between them occurred. At last we are alone. My Eleanor, you do not yet know all my happiness. Colonel Brandon loves Marianne. He has told me so himself. Her daughter, feeling by turns both pleased and pained, surprised and not surprised, was all silent attention. 
You are never like me, dear Eleanor, or I should wonder at your composure now. Had I sat down to wish for any possible good to my family, I should have wished I should have fixed on Colonel Brandon's marrying one of you as the object most desirable. And I believe Marianne will be the most happy with him of the two. Eleanor was half inclined to ask her reason for thinking so, because satisfied that no one founded on any impartial consideration of their age, characters, or feelings could be given. But her mother must always be carried away by her imagination on any interesting subject, and therefore, instead of an inquiry, she passed it off with a smile. He opened his whole heart to me yesterday as we traveled. It came out quite unawares, quite undesignedly. I, you may well believe, could talk of nothing but my child. He could not conceal his distress. I saw that it equaled my own, and he perhaps, thinking that mere friendship, as the world now goes, would not justify so warm a sympathy, or rather not thinking at all, I suppose, giving way to irresistible feelings, made me acquainted with his earnest, tender, constant affection for Marian. He has loved her, my dear Eleanor, ever since the first moment of seeing her. Here, however, Eleanor perceived not the language, not the professions of Colonel Brandon, but the natural embellishments of her mother's active fancy, which fashioned everything delightful to her as it chose. His regard for her, infinitely surpassing anything that Willoughby ever felt or feigned, as much more warm, as more sincere or constant, whichever we are to call it, has subsisted through all the knowledge of dear Marianne's unhappy prepossession for that worthless young man. And without selfishness, without encouraging a hope, could he have seen her happy with another. Such a noble mind, such openness, such sincerity. No one can be deceived in him. Colonel Braddon's character, said Eleanor, as an excellent man is well established. I know it is replied her mother seriously, or after such a warning, I should be the last to encourage such affection or even to be pleased by it. But his coming for me as he did with such active, such ready friendship is enough to prove him one of the worthiest of men. His character, however, answered Eleanor, does not rest on one act of kindness to which his affection for Marianne, where humanity out of the case would have prompted him. To Mrs. Jennings, to the Middletons, he has been long and intimately known. They equally love and respect him. And even my knowledge, my own knowledge of him, though lately acquired, is very considerable. And so highly do I value and esteem him that if Marianne can be happy with him, I shall be as ready as yourself to think our connection the greatest blessing to us in the world. What answer did you give him? Did you allow him to hope? Oh, my love, I could not then talk of hope to him or to myself. Marianne might at that moment be dying, but he did not ask for hope or encouragement. His was an involuntary confidence and irrepressible effusion to a soothing friend, not an application to a parent. Yet after a time I did say, for at first I was quite overcome, that if she lived as I trusted she might, my greatest happiness would lie in promoting their marriage. And since our arrival, since our delightful security, I have repeated it to him more fully, have given him every encouragement in my power. Time, a very little time, I tell him, will do everything. Marian's heart is not to be wasted forever on such a man as Willoughby. His own merits must soon secure it. 
To judge from the colonel's spirits, however, you have not yet made him equally sanguine. No, he thinks Marianne's affection too deeply rooted for any change in it under a great length of time. And even supposing her heart again free, is too diffident of himself to believe that with such a difference of age and disposition, he could ever attach her. There, however, he's quite mistaken. His age is only so much beyond hers as to be an advantage as to make his character and principles fixed. And his disposition, I am well convinced, is exactly the very one to make your sister happy. And his person, his manners too, are all in his favor. My partiality does not blind me. He certainly is not so handsome as Willoughby, but at the same time, there is something much more pleasing in his countenance. There was always a something, if you remember, in Willoughby's eyes at times which I did not like. Eleanor could not remember it, but her mother, without waiting for her assent, continued. And his manners, the colonel's manners, are not only more pleasing to me than Willoughby's ever were, but they are of a kind I well know to be more solidly attaching to Marianne. Their gentleness, their genuine attention to other people, and their manly, unstudied simplicity is much more accordant with her real disposition than the liveliness, often artificial and often ill-timed, of the other. I am very sure myself that had Willoughby turned out as really amiable as he has proved himself the contrary, Marianne would yet never have been so happy with him as she will be with Colin O'Brand. She paused. Her daughter could not quite agree with her, but her dissent was not heard and therefore gave no offense. At Delaford, she will be within an easy distance of me, added Mrs. Dashwood, even if I remain at Barton. And in all probability, for I hear it is a large village, indeed there certainly must be some small house or cottage close by that would suit us quite as well as our present situation. Poor Eleanor, here was a new scheme for getting her to Delaford, but her spirit was stubborn. His fortune too, for at any time of life, you know, everybody cares about that. And though I neither know nor desire to know what it really is, I'm sure it must be a good one. Here they were interrupted by the entrance of a third person, and Eleanor withdrew to think it all over in private, to wish success to her friend, and yet in wishing it to feel a pang for Willoughby. And here we are. This is the end of chapter 46, I mean 45, or volume three, or, or chapter 9 of volume 3, the last chapter we had to discuss today. So a lot has happened. And a lot is yet to happen in our last session. So next week, and be aware that it will be on Wednesday, April 26th, at 1 o'clock uh, p.m. Central European time, we're going to meet here live to finish reading Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. We're going to read five chapters, and we're going to wrap up this incredible um, uh, series of guided readings of Jane Austen's sensibility. I hope you've liked it. Um, I love to receive your feedback. And remember, if you want to continue your journey studying Jane Austen, um, you can follow the online course, the Jane Austen Club, and get to it right away and enrich your experience reading Austen's novels even more. So I hope you've had a great session today and I will see you next week for our last session. See you then.
So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this 12th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, it is our last session. We'll read and discuss chapters 46 to 50, which means we'll finish the book and this project. As we move towards the end of this novel, I'd love to know what other books you'd like to read along with me in this format. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world, and literary career, you cannot miss the online course, The Jane Austen Club. Find out more information on the website, booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature.